0: Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in snowy Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, assistant editor Michelle Rendell and I talk with refugees about their experience resettling in Nevada and exploring the implications of a record low cap on the number of refugees that the U.S. will accept this year.
1: After that, I chat with reporter Humberto Sanchez, our man in D.C., about what Nevada's role could be under a Biden administration, and how Congress might tackle some looming challenges in 2021.
0: Then photographer Daniel Clark gives me a call, and we get to know him a little better, how he got his start with us, and what it's been like shooting photos in 2020 as we pull back the curtain here at the Indy.
1: And at the end of the show, I talk with reporter Megan Messerly to get the latest numbers and newest developments related to the coronavirus pandemic in Nevada.
2: 30-year-old Samim Hashmi, his wife, and two young children recently moved into a sleek new apartment in Sparks, so new that some of the other buildings in the complex are still under construction. Sometimes the loud noises from the heavy machinery startle him. But it's nothing like back at home in Kabul, Afghanistan.
3: You never know when an explosion is going to happen on the street, or maybe you, people are sleeping and the explosion happens during the night. And some people, they don't wake up.
2: The Hashmi family arrived in Northern Nevada two months ago in a special immigrant visa, which is granted to certain people who have worked for the U.S. government for at least two years. But the Trump administration recently capped the number of refugees allowed in the country, to a record low of 15,000 people this fiscal year. By contrast, the refugee cap was 110,000 in the last year of the Obama administration. The change means opportunities for people from war-torn countries to begin anew in the U.S. are becoming fewer and further between.
3: It is much worse than what you, what you are the one hears from the media. Innocent people are being killed and kidnapped by many different terrorist groups every day poverty rate is much higher in the country. So for Afghans in Afghanistan, they just live to survive. They don't, they don't, leave. They don't live to live their lives or enjoy their lives. And it took me um, nine years of my life to get out of the war zone and start a new life in peace. However, I still have my parents and beloved ones left in common.
2: Hashmi's family fled to Pakistan for the decade after the Taliban took control of his home country in the mid-1990s. It's a familiar story. Afghanistan is the third most common country of origin for refugees, and Pakistan is the third most common destination for refugees. Hashmi learned English in Pakistan, had some ups and downs trying to start his own business, and eventually landed a job as a procurement agent at the U.S. Embassy. That started what would be a nine-year process before he finally came to the US.
3: Well, it is so important. It meant a lot for me. People are losing their lives. And if you have, if you are lucky enough to get um, such opportunities, then it is similar to the end of a horrible movie that you got out of such a long zone.
2: There are 26 million refugees in the world, and less than 1% will ever be formally resettled, according to the United Nations. For those lucky few, the process works like this. Candidates are background-checked, interviewed, and screened for medical conditions. If they are approved to come to the U.S., refugee resettlement agencies help find and stock an apartment for the refugee family. The State Department provides the funding needed for the family's first 90 days. One of those resettlement agencies is the Northern Nevada International Center, which helps connect families with government assistance, schools, health care, and transportation, It's headed by Karina Black, who sees the task of resettlement as America's obligation as a world leader.
4: We are the most powerful country in the world, and that's why we can make the world a better place. So if we step back, many other leaders who are looking at the United States are doing the exact same thing in their countries.
2: The International Center is based at UNR and was established in the final years of the Obama administration, when the federal government was aiming to ramp up the number of organizations that were able to help people resettle. But it's never been able to fully reach its goals.
4: When we started, um, the approach was basically uh, to resettle about 100 people per year. And in the last four years, we have never been able to reach that goal. We got close, I want to say in twenty 20- 17 or eight in 2018, we, we resettled about 80 people, um, but on average, has, it's been between 60, um, around 60. And so this last year, of course, it was even lower because of COVID, there was a moratorium on refugees entering the country from about mid-March to July, and um, then it opened up again.
2: The election of Joe Biden could take the country's refugee resettlement policies in a new direction. Biden reiterated this month that he wants to raise the refugee cap to 125,000 people a year.
5: Restoring refugee admission in line with the values and historic leadership of our country, raising the target to a minimum of 125,000 people a year in my first year. He's cut it down to 15. The average has been 95,000 a year working with Congress to establish a bipartisan legislation to ensure a minimum admission of 95,000 refugees.
2: It's a stark contrast to the Trump administration, which has framed refugee resettlement as a burden on the country.
4: Not only does Joe Biden want to eliminate your jobs, he wants to eliminate your borders. He's promised to flood your state with refugees, and you know that as well as I do, and you see it all the time, from terrorist hotspots around the world, including Syria, Somalia, and Yemen.
2: Black disagrees. She points out that refugees become self-sufficient within months of arrival and make significant contributions to the economy. The federal government in 2017 determined that refugees are net benefits to the economy. Contributing $63 billion to the federal government over a decade, above what the federal government had paid to help them adjust to the U.S. Black and other immigrant advocates say they are also important to the diversity and the fabric of the country.
4: It is about survival for us as a country and for our country's soul, I would say, because that's who we are as a country. We were built by people who fled from someplace. Samim's wife
2: is now trying to learn English herself at Truckee Meadows Community College. And Samim hopes to get a job in procurement, with dreams of eventually starting his own family business. He looks forward to giving his son and daughter the kind of life that he wasn't able to have in Afghanistan. For now, he has a message for those considering whether to welcome more refugees to the U.S.
3: Afghans are... We were to live in peace and we are just in the wrong hands. Please save our lives.
0: This piece was reported and produced by Michelle Rendells and myself, Joey Lovato. If you want to read more about this and other similar topics, you can find those stories on our website, thenevadaindependent.com.
1: With the election now settled, outside, of course, President Trump's attempt to litigate and otherwise undermine the results of the race for the White House, we wanted to take a look at Capitol Hill. A Joe Biden administration will have dozens of spinning plates to tackle on day one, and a divided Congress is among them, or most likely. So how will Nevada's delegation, comprised almost entirely of Democrats, play into those policy fights? With me now to break it all down is our Washington, D.C.-based reporter, Umberto Sanchez. How you doing? Hey, Jake. how are you? doing well. So I think what's on everyone's mind is the coronavirus still, and what Congress's role in coronavirus relief is going to look like next year. Has there been any sense about what relief might be coming, what stimulus looks like, what the arguments are being made on both sides right now as we're in this sort of weird transition period?
6: Yeah, that's right. So the Basically, nothing was clarified from the election. Before the election, we had uh, the Democrats wanting a bigger bill, that looking at 2.2 trillion. The Republicans wanting a smaller bill, and then the election came along, and people thought uh, perhaps that that would uh, give some clarity or some capital to uh, political capital to one side or the other. But nothing's changed. They've just come back to their same positions. You see the Democrats again pushing for a 2.2 trillion dollar bill. If not more, and House and Senate Republicans talking about roughly five point five hundred billion dollars, and um, you know all of the, uh, and this is a top priority for all of the members of the delegation. Uh, it, you, uh, Mark Amaday and Susie Lee, for example, were a part of a group uh, of, of moderates that uh, helped jumpstart talks in September. There haven't been any talks actually since the election. Uh, so we don't know what's going to happen. It doesn't look well. It doesn't look good for for any kind of cover relief at the moment. Um, but uh, at the at the very least, it's going to be less than the 2.2 that the Democrats want. So you probably are going to see a, a, a Democrats and, and the delegation pushing for another bite at the apple, even if they do something before uh, before the end of the year, which which again is not too likely.
1: And one of the sticking points with all this has has been the money for state and local governments. The Democrats have wanted to include this in their plans for a long time now, going back to, you know, post-CARES Act. And obviously the Republicans, and especially Senate Republicans, have rejected outright any state and local money. Um, is that still a sticking point? Are Republicans still drawing a hard line in the sand over giving these governments extra money from the federal government?
6: That's absolutely right. That remains a sticking point. The top line is... Uh is the biggest sticking point, right? Because if you can't figure out how much money you want, you're not going to get an agreement. But right below that is uh, state and local governments, because if you don't know how how you're going to distribute the money that you agreed on, then there's no deal as well. So uh, yeah, that remains a big issue. Uh, McConnell, uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader in the Senate, uh, said this week that um, the problem. With state and local governments, is that uh, they, they their revenues have been going up. There's been a, a an increase in in the economy or boost in the economy in, over recent months. That's part partly in part of because of how how devastated things were from from uh, measures taken to rein in the virus. So, uh, but things are on the uptick, and Republicans are using that as uh, an argument to say, you know, we really don't need to take care of state and local, local governments at the moment. And so uh, if a deal is struck, it's it's hard to say whether that'll be included or not. If it's not included, look for Democrats uh, to come back at that next year uh, under the President Biden administration.
1: I'm also curious, another sticking point when we talk about um, stimulus and receiving money has been the ongoing unemployment benefits and um, basically these these measures aimed at people who might be out of work because, like you mentioned, these strict virus control measures. Um, with this, again, we're in this weird zone where there are uh, promising vaccine candidates that are likely going to be available soon. What soon means, we don't actually know. Um, and so has there been any movement at all when it comes to the personal relief, you know, giving individuals any kind of of money or, or uh, financial
6: benefits? That is uh, one place where there is uh, an agreement that there's a need. But uh, again, there's a discrepancy over how much uh up until august people were getting an extra six hundred dollars who people who were claiming unemployment insurance in their checks uh that expired and right now there's an argument over how whether to bring that back the democrats want to reinstitute the six hundred dollars republicans would only like to see maybe as much as two hundred dollars and you hear uh, people like mark amaday making uh, an argument that uh you know that if you're making more and un- under an unemployment than you are at your current job, that's a disincentive uh, to come back to work, and that was uh, the case in certain circumstances. Uh, however, uh, n- now it's not the case because no one's getting uh, the- that that boost anymore. And but we still have high unemployment. Uh, I don't know if you saw uh, Nevada reported an unemployment rate of 12% in October, and that's down from uh, 12.5% in September, but it's still uh, twice the national rate of 6.9%. So It's interesting. uh, And because of that fact, you know, that Nevada was hit so hard, uh, particularly because it has such a a tourism and entertainment based economy. So I think next year, uh, irrespective of what happens, look for legislation, uh, especially coming out of this uh, delegation to help jumpstart tourism and hospitality sectors of the economy. I think that's going to be a high priority for folks next year uh, in our neck of the woods.
1: So, I guess uh, last, I'm curious um, about the budget. The budget is always a huge issue in Congress. Um, it, you know, yearly fights, you know, always threats to shut down the government. It is part and parcel of the experience of just looking at Congress as a body at this point. Um, and I think that's still true now. Uh, we're looking now at Republicans who are returning to being hawks on the deficit, looking at a Democratic president and already being critical of even potential spending that hasn't quite happened yet. Um, is there a sense from either the Nevada delegation or Congress at large uh, over what the budget fights are going to be, even outside what we've already seen with the stimulus?
6: There seems to be more of a, a consensus on doing something. So uh, the, right now, the lay of the land is they have till December 11th to to either pass what's called an omnibus appropriations bill, which will package together all 12 annual appropriations bills, or pass uh, some kind of a stopgap short-term measure. So uh we'll see, we'll see what, what is done there, there right now, the. The momentum is to try to get an omnibus bill done. It's always better to finish that the year's work in one year, Uh, uh but we'll see if they can do that. It's not, it wouldn't be for the first time that they would have to punt into the next fiscal year to try to We're I guess we're already in the next fiscal year, but into the next calendar year to try to get done the previous fiscal year's work. So we'll, uh, we'll be watching, but, uh, watching that for that, uh, Representative Amade is also on the Appropriations Committee and he'll be, uh, involved in those talks. He's our, uh, our only appropriator actually. Uh, but, uh, you know, he won't be there for these next two weeks just because he's quarantining now after being at, at that event, uh, in Reno with, uh, Governor Sisolak who tested positive last week for coronavirus. He's since taken a COVID test and he's, he's negative, but he's just taking, being extra cautious by staying home these, these couple weeks.
1: So we're, we're already, you know, more than halfway through November. We're coming up on December. How much time is there left for Congress to get all this stuff done before they leave for the end of the year?
6: I think that the soft deadline is really uh, Christmas. Uh, we've been here through Christmas before, but I think that there's going to there's be an, uh, a desire to try to get back uh, soon after uh, December 11th, that they could have the, day, the deadline for them to pass another budget. Uh, and it also depends on whether, you know... Uh, president trump concedes the election i think that that's gonna be a a operative uh, issue for them for for them to you know whether they stay around or not because i think that it kind of colors all the legislation that's got to happen between now and then so um it's anybody's guess really i i would say you know either shortly between in that week between the 11th and christmas would be i think the the time that they'll wrap it up
1: well, lots to keep an eye on. If you want to read more about what's happening on Capitol Hill, you can read Umberto's weekly stories, The DC Download, and you can follow more of his reporting on the thenevadaindependent.com. Umberto, thanks so much. Thank you.
0: All right, welcome to the third segment of the podcast and I am joined by another photographer. This week we are joined by photographer Daniel Clark down in Las Vegas. Daniel, you've been shooting photos for us for
7: for a few years now. How's it going? Doing pretty good. Been there since uh, day 2 or 3 or one of those days.
0: <laughs> yeah, early you've been you're one of our first photographers that we
7: used and can you kind of just explain to me, you know, how you ended up working with us? Mostly it was harassment. Mostly. I I kind of, I tapped into everybody that I knew that might have a connection with John because I'd never met John before or E or 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 anybody really. But I tried to, because I heard about the Indie and what they were doing and I decided that I wanted to do it. And I think eventually he must have gotten worn down and uh, took a look at my portfolio and I don't know what made him decide that I, you know, I warranted a look, but here I am and I'm really happy for it.
0: Yeah, I mean, and you've done a ton of work for us. I mean, you you were kind of our main photographer this year, um, shooting the Black Lives Matter protest and kind of getting all the photography for that down in Las Vegas. Can you kind of explain to me, I mean, what it was like, you know, getting shots there, but then also just in 2020 in general, it's been a really weird year to kind of go out and shoot photos. You know, how's that been?
7: been? It's been extraordinarily weird across the board. With Black Lives Matter, it was interesting because it was one of the first times I'd really thought about the ethics of showing people's faces and, and things like that because of targeting that's been happening may or may not still be happening, that kind of thing in terms of protesters, uh, counter-protesters, things like that. And, uh, and it was just finding different ways to shoot something and, and trying to be mindful of the things that you're shooting and, and things like that. And uh, I've never been pepper sprayed until then and never been tear gas until then, never been tackled by a police officer until then. It was a, it was a wild night and... Um, it's something that I think that I am better for for having for having experienced and uh, documented it, but it was it was wild. It was it was intense.
0: Yeah, I mean you can just see from the photographs and we have a couple of stories and a video up on our website if you want to go check them out. And you can see all of the really intense photos that you got during you know, some of the more the more aggressive clashes during during the the protests early on there. And just in general with 2020, you know, again, like, you know, all the social distancing and then also with presidential candidates how has that been just shooting you know politics now
7: it was great a joke that i used to make when the campaign was kind of early going was that the best thing that happened to photographers was the number of candidates because (laughs) every candidate came to the valley and i had work constantly because every time somebody showed up you know you need new photos of that person who's never been to, to to the valley before and i got to work so much it was wonderful and when it started dwindling down to like two, three candidates, work started to get a little bit more scarce, but that it was it was easy going for a while. It was working almost every day. <laughs> there was 19, I think, at one point was the most. Yeah. It was so, I think I have photos of most of them. So
0: yeah. Well, and and they're are great photos too. And actually, if you want to see those some of those photos, we put together a photo book, the Nevada 2020, and it's got photos from you and also from Jeff Scheid, who we talked to last week, and David Calvert, who you hear from in the next podcast. But yeah, you know, those that's just like a fantastic little thing. You can get it on our on our swag store on the Indie site. I, Daniel, I wanted to ask too, you know, what's been your favorite thing that you've ever gone out and shot for us?
7: I would say that my favorite thing that I did was I got to follow Governor Sisolak. When he was headed up north, I got to sort of be embedded with his like travel crew. It was interesting to kind of see him interact with like Nevadans all the way up north and and kind of see his interaction with the native tribes with people in just small towns there was vegas and obviously in, in carson and reno and it was just interesting to see him and see him as sort of a personal light also because i got to take a tour when he first walked into the governor's mansion after sandoval had moved out and uh, it was just interesting to see him and his wife just sort of wandering these huge empty rooms and, and just sort of like talking to each other, saying like, oh, we can put this here, we can do that there. It was just interesting to be in that kind of a personal space with somebody that powerful. So that's one of my favorites.
0: Well, I, Daniel, I haven't been able to see you in over a year. I think we, the last time we saw each other was like, well, almost over a year, but the Christmas party last year. Hopefully once the pandemic subsides, we can all, all of us at the Indie can get together for another, maybe a belated Christmas party or something like that. But thank you so much for chatting with me today. And hopefully you can get out there and Get some more fantastic photos, and if you want to check out Daniel's photos, you can check out his uh, his Instagram. And Daniel, do you have a website or anything?
7: Uh, yeah, it's dclark.photo
0: All right, let's check that stuff out too, because Daniel's a a fantastic photographer. Daniel, thank you so much for chatting with me.
7: Thanks so much. It's good to be here.
1: And now we want to take a minute to dive a little deeper into the context of the coronavirus in Nevada. To help us do that, as always, is Nevada Independent Healthcare reporter Megan Messerly. Megan, thanks for being here.
5: Happy to be here.
1: All right, Megan. So before we get into anything else, we're going to start with the numbers. Um, noting that we're recording at 10 a.m. on Friday, November 20th. What can you tell us about the data?
5: Right, so we're sitting just a little bit above 130,000 cases statewide. Um, We haven't quite reached uh, 2,000 deaths yet. We're at um, 1,959 deaths um, as of this morning. And, you know, as our listeners know, we're still tracking recoveries as well. So we're about 106,000 recoveries. And just to give you a sense of of the scope of that. Um, in terms of case numbers, that means one out of every 24 Nevadans has tested positive for COVID-19. It's worth noting that we know, especially at the, pand- or at the beginning of the pandemic, there were a lot of cases that we you know, might have missed because we weren't testing as widely. Even still, not everyone gets tested for COVID. So that's just out of people who have actually gone and gotten a, a you know, positive confirmed COVID test. Um, One of the really interesting uh, statistics that I I noticed yesterday when I was putting together my weekly coronavirus data story is that um, if you look at the number of cases that were reported over the last seven days, they actually represent 10% of the total cases since the beginning uh, of the pandemic, which which is kind of a a striking figure. um, Just because, you know, we've seen cases increase. We've obviously been talking about how rapidly cases have been increasing, but now we're at this point where we're breaking our own records day over day, right? We were at this point where we were sort of matching, you know, climbing back up to the level we had seen uh, during our prior peak over the summer, but now we've, we've by far exceeded that. And we're seeing, you know, 2000 or so new cases um, reported today, which, which we weren't seeing over the summer. Um, I think one of the other things worth noting is that, you know, we've seen uh, Washoe County be hit really hard by this. Obviously the whole state is being hit hard right now by, by COVID, but, you know, if you look at Washoe County's numbers, they were, you know, their peak over the summer, I think, was 98 cases, and now they're, you know, around 400 new cases, you know, so they're, you know, it's quadruple um, the height from the summer. And Clark County had experienced this really big peak over the summer, and now they finally um, climbed back up and, and surpassed their summer peak. But in a lot of counties, um, it's more like what you're seeing in Washoe County, where you're having these really big. Um, peaks. You know, Carson City uh, has seen a really big peak. A lot of that's attributed to uh, you know an outbreak at Warm Springs Correctional. Uh, center, uh, but you know, they have community spread as well. You've seen peaks like that in Elko. So we are really seeing sort of these record, um, you know, case numbers uh, week after week at this point. And it's worth mentioning that um, we're seeing this reflected in our hospitalization data as well. This week, we hit um, new record hospitalizations, breaking the the record from over the summer. So now we're at about over um, 1,200 hospitalizations. That's uh, total confirmed and suspected um, people with COVID-19 in the hospital at any given time.
1: All right. Well, knowing the extent of the spike that we're in right now and that we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks, I'm curious about what's happening at the policy level. Last week, the governor announced a voluntary stay at home order. Stay at home 2.0, it was called. We're about a week into that, and it's still a bit early maybe to glean too much. But has anything changed in the numbers? Are are we even going to see any kind of effect from a a kind of mitigation effort like stay at home 2.0?
5: Yes, it's a really interesting question. State officials addressed this on a call this week. You know, uh, they were talking about the case numbers there, you know, again, we're seeing record case numbers day over day. Um, But this is something that we've talked about before. Whenever there's a mitigation measure that's put into place or a mitigation measure that's removed, it generally takes a little bit of time for that to show up in the data, usually a couple of weeks. So uh, when the governor issued his, you know, stay at home 2.0, which is essentially a recommendation for people to to limit their non-essential activities. Um, you know, we're, we're not really expecting to see that the impacts of that for probably about two weeks. And he gave the state two weeks to turn around its data. So in, in some ways, it's not surprising that, you know, we're not seeing the data improve, you know, on the other hand, uh, at the COVID-19 mitigation and management task force meeting last week. You know, we had state officials talking about how, how the numbers are increasing and you have county officials talking about how, you know, compliance in businesses has been really hard, how they're seeing a lot of private gatherings. And so it doesn't seem to indicate that there has been a lot of changes in behavior as, you know, the governor, I think, was hoping for under stay at home 2.0. So, again, I think the jury's still out as far as whether that, you know, has, has had any impact yet, because, again, we wouldn't really start to expect seeing that um, for, for maybe a few more days um you know on the other hand uh the you know that the clock is ticking down um and the governor you know has given the state until Tuesday to turn around its its data and and we have not seen that yet
1: mm. Well, knowing then you just mentioned behavior and the way that people are responding to this COVID spike, then I'm curious, uh, at this week's uh, COVID task force meeting, there was a a call for recommendations by the state from the counties, uh, so the counties could suggest whatever mitigation measures they think the state should undertake. Did the counties have any suggestions?
5: Yeah, so at this week's, you know, COVID-19 task force, there was this call, you know, asking people for suggestions, asking counties for suggestions of, you know, what would, you know, what would help limit the spread of of COVID-19 and, you know, what would sort of be accepted in your communities? Because I think that's one of the big problems that we've seen, especially in rural Nevada, is the state, you know, issues some sort of order, some sort of mitigation measure, but then it's really hard to get that buy-in from the public. So I think this was an effort by the task force to sort of incorporate the counties into that decision On the other hand, you know, counties did not have um, great solutions. You know, Clark County specifically said, you know, nope, we we, we don't have anything to recommend to you. Washoe County did uh, recommend limiting gatherings to 10 people um, you know, which, which they said, you know, there's, there's a new study that came out showing that that could be, you know, really helpful mitigation measure. But the big thing that we heard from the rural counties was saying, you know, we just need a clear message from the governor about why we're doing this. Right. Um, we know that, you know, if there are more stringent mitigation measures put in place, this is not going to make COVID go away. Right. We know, we know that's not going to happen, but the messaging they were saying needs to be clear that this is Specifically to help our hospitals, right? Um, You know, renowned hospital in in Reno, renowned regional medical center, you know, they're now treating patients in their parking garage in an alternate care site they've set up because, you know, their capacity is such that they're needing to do that. Um, In Carson City, the city has requested that the Department of Corrections set up um, a field hospital for at at Warm Springs uh, Correctional Center because they they said you know they need to uh, you know reduce some of the the demand on Carson Tahoe Regional Medical Center which is the hospital in Carson City um, so we've seen you know some of these incremental steps to try and reduce the pressure on hospital capacity and so the rural counties were saying you know if, if we have more mitigation measures in place we really need to make it clear to the public this is for our hospitals it's for a limited time so we can turn things around um, you know because we know at this point that mitigation measures you know aren't, aren't going to be stopping the spread of the virus you know in 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 large, like coronavirus is still going to be out
1: there. Mm. And I guess this is a key point on hospitals because, uh, you know, not everyone in the hospital is someone being treated for COVID. There are plenty of other reasons to go to the hospital right now. So... We'll have to keep an eye on those numbers. And we're going to have to keep an eye on what happens Tuesday. Um, As always, if you want to know more about the coronavirus in Nevada, you can head to our website, thenevadaindependent.com. There you can find weekly updates from Megan in her coronavirus contextualized series, as well as regularly updated dashboard updates with all the latest COVID-19 data. Megan, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters.
0: We'd like to thank Michelle Rendells, Humberto Sanchez, Daniel Clark, and Megan Masterly for being on the show this week. If
1: you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you like to listen.
0: Do you have thoughts about the podcast? Let us know by emailing me at joey at theenvyindie.com or jacob at theenvyindie.com.
1: Our theme song was written and performed by Reno band People With Bodies. If you want to hear more of their music, you can find it on Spotify and Bandcamp. Additional music this week from Lance Conrad and Storyblocks.
0: Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato.
1: And I'm reporter and producer
0: Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.